Well, we are in our series in Acts, and I want to begin with a little review. I want to actually review some of the activities in Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2. The Lord calls and equips. Uh, the Lord calls his church. He has a thing he calls us to. And then in chapter 2, with the Spirit of God, he equips us to do that thing. In Acts chapters 3 through 7, the name of Christ is being proclaimed. And it's being proclaimed within Jerusalem, mainly in those chapters. Uh, Acts chapter 8, God's people are scattered through persecution. Uh, they're scattered throughout Judea and, Roma- and Romania, Judea and Samaria. Um, and that's happening. God's thing is expanding. Acts chapter 9, end of Acts chapter 9 and into 10, we actually see the gospel is heading to the ends of the earth. There's a movement through the book. It's telling a story of the gospel increasing. Along with the activities, there are persons. We could kind of come and clearly note that there are some people along these that are highlighted. Acts chapter 1, uh, it's the disciples, uh, yet Peter is coming to the forefront. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 through 5, Peter is at the forefront. John is kind of his sidekick right there, but clearly Peter is front and center. Acts 6 and 7, Stephen, uh, one of the seven who are selected in Acts 6 to serve and care for the widow, Stephen's forefront. And then Acts chapter 8, Philip, also one of the seven that were selected as forefront. And then Acts chapter 9, where we were last Sunday, Saul and his conversion story. Saul's life is rocked. And by the way, today, Peter's life is rocked as well. Peter is back on the scene, Acts chapter 10. It's really cool. And I want for us to have this understanding as we dive into this text now. It has now been some 10 years since Acts chapter 1. You know, in the beginning of Acts, we sometimes think that this is a long spread of time. It's actually tight. But now where there's really kind of a jump of period to realize there's been 10 years since Matthew 28, 19, and 20 in the call. There's been 10 years since Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the call that we would be people who would go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And uh, it's been how many years? 10 years now. And God has been doing a transitioning work all through that time, and he's patiently and persistently forming his church and carrying out his ends of the earth program. There has been a big paradigm shift taking place by God in how he works with mankind. And sometimes God's people, we need a God nudge to get us into understanding God's program. Peter gets a nudge today. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to cover all the way through chapter 10. Here we go. Peter's back on the scene, and we find him in the city of Lydda. He's in Lydda. Let me read verses 32 to 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, uh, the New International Version says he traveled about the country. Understand, he's not that far away. He's maybe within... 20 miles of Jerusalem kind of a thing. So he's not like in China or somewhere, but he's kind of staying in Judea area. Now, Peter went there here and there among them all, and he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Anath, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Anath, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose... And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I just have to say, Peter's been off the scene for a lot of chapters now. 
Actually, Peter's been kind of off the biblical front of our text for a number of years now. And all of a sudden, he's back on scene. And it's kind of like Luke wants to let us know what Peter's doing. Peter is kicking it out for the Lord. And here we find Peter healing Anas. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon are turning to the Lord. And you can just sum it up this way. God healed people for increased gospel impact. God healed people for increased gospel impact. And Peter was clearly a part of that. As we're kind of catching up with Peter, well, let's just go on. We now find Peter in Joppa, uh, in Joppa, verse 36. And now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Okay, can we all be in favor of Tabitha over Dorcas, right? Okay, so from here on out, even though the text says Dorcas, I'm just doing Tabitha. Bless her heart, because this woman is a sweetheart. Watch this. She was full of good works and acts of charity. We'll see what we're talking about here. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Uh, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him. Uh, here we don't even see what they're urging him to do. I honestly, I don't know if he was coming to uh, kind of give a, a farewell speech. I don't mean that light. I mean, seriously, at the funeral, was it to actually, they were thinking maybe raise, him, raise her from the dead. I don't know. But here we go. Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Tabitha made while she was with them. This is just a special moment. This just gives you some insight into this woman. We don't know how old she was, but we know this. She loved on people. She loved on people. And here the widows and, and women are holding up things that she made for them. That just gives you some uh, just warm, cuddly feelings about Tabitha, doesn't it? What a sweetheart. What a heart of mercy for people. Oh, I'll say what a testimony at her death. Verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. By the way, this sounds very much like what Jesus did in the gospels and turning to the body he said tabitha arise i just pause on that because you've got to have a lot of guts and a lot of faith to be able to do that i mean it's one thing if jesus is there in the room and he does it okay god can do that but here, all of a sudden, one of the apostles, and we've known that uh, miraculous things have been happening, and Peter, uh, by, through God's power, has been healing people, we just saw right before. And all of a sudden, now Peter comes in, and Peter's like, arise. I mean, we're talking arise from the dead. Um, I don't think this is arrogance. I think God is uh, helping him understand or telling him what to do. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up I like this. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Thank you. Isn't that the truth? You've all been around thinking this is her funeral. And Peter walks out of the door. And she walks out of the door. Oh, my. Wow. Verse 42, 
and it became known throughout all Joppa. Many people believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Uh, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. It's known throughout all Joppa. Many believe, and here we find God raised people for increased gospel impact. Not only did God heal people, but God raised people for increased gospel impact. Amazing. By the way, um, Simon stayed with who? What does the text say? Simon stayed with Simon. What was Simon Simon's job? <laughs> A tanner. Keep that thought. San, uh, Peter has been in Lydda. Peter's been in Joppa. Now Peter enters what I'm calling the city of paradigm shift. Here we go, chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A Cornelius, he was a significant man of rank. Uh, he was a man's man, being able to do what he was. He was in Caesarea. That'd be about 30 miles north of Joppa. I would encourage you to go ahead and uh, take a look in the back of your Bible, the map you can see. You can see that Lydda or some uh, maps have it as Lod. It's right in the, about uh, uh, kind of northwest of Jerusalem. And then you've got Joppa uh, right on the coast, uh, west of uh, of Lydda, and then about 30 miles north, you see Caesarea. 30 miles, that's a good uh, amount of walk. Uh, keep that in mind here. It's also a part of the Roman province. And uh, here's one of the things that's really important. Cornelius was a Gentile, okay? Very important. Cornelius was a Gentile, verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. This is cool. I mean, here's a guy who feared God. He gave generously. He prayed continuously to God. Uh, by the way, we're going to find out in a moment, uh, Cornelius was not redeemed in Christ. It sure sounds like it right at that point. Cornelius was a man who was pursuing after the Lord. And we see this uh, a man who's, who has this uh, passion for the Lord uh, continually pursuing after. We'll find out a little bit more. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He obviously knows this is a divine encounter. And he said to him, listen to what this angel says. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I love that picture of this idea of prayer. What is prayer here is talking about. This is an angel that's saying this. Your prayers have ascended. That's cool. It's like gone up. And your prayers have formed into this memorial before God. What's a memorial? Something you look at and remember. Something of significance. Something that has historicalness to it. It's not a light thing. It's a powerful thing as a memorial. Prayers are a memorial before God, and I'm not going to spend the time on it, but even consider this. Cornelius is not a believer, and yet it is noted here that his prayers are a memorial before the Lord. By the way, can I just say, be very careful when you say, you know what, God does not hear the prayers of the unbeliever. Because here we find Cornelius is pursuing the Lord, and I'll say it this way. God does hear the prayers of the person who's pursuing after the Lord. And God is about to answer what Cornelius doesn't even know he needs. 
He's pursuing after. This is such a sweet passage. So many levels here I could be going at with it, but it's just sweet. Verse 5, and now uh, send, the angel says, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Joppa is on the seaside, and that's where Simon Peter is. And Peter is staying with Simon, whose uh, uh, job is a tanner. Uh, Why is that a big deal? Because a tanner was a trade that was despised by devout Jews. Devout Jews, uh, if you were a tanner, you were not liked. I have to say, I think this gives me great encouragement about Peter. I'm thrilled that Peter is actually spending time with people who are outside of the realm of general acceptance. And Peter is spending time with this man. Uh, Sometimes Peter is given kind of the view at this point in time that Peter is kind of this stuck only on Israel, only on Jerusalem thing. I think we'll see some of that. God has to push him here. But I'll have to say, way to go, Peter. You're staying with people that all the other devout Jews would be going, what in the world are you staying with him for? He's got a passion for people. Very encouraging. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, which day? The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city. By the way, why do they include all this stuff? I'll just simply, this isn't going to be the focus of where we're going, but I'm just going to simply say, God sovereignly works events. And that includes God sovereignly working the lives of people. God is all behind this. God is all over this. So at the time that they're on their journey uh, down to Joppa, south to Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanting something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And then it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened how many times? Three occurs a lot in Acts. Uh, this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I'd like everybody, I don't do this whole lot, but turn to Leviticus 20, obviously one of your favorite books of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 20. Uh, In Leviticus 11, God lists all the animals that you can eat and not eat, okay? The uh, ones that you should and shouldn't eat for the Jews at the time. But I want to go to Leviticus 20, verses 25 and 26, and just note here, this is uh, essentially God spoke to Moses, Moses declaring it, but we can say this is God speaking here. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 25. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. God is saying this. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is important in this because God set this into place, right? God put this into place. Eat this, don't eat that. 
uh, holy. What does holy mean? We sang about holy today. Holy means separated, set apart. Uh, God even wanted his people to be set apart from everybody else by what they eat. Some people get all in a, in, you know, thinking it's so awesome that before science came in and all that we knew about food and the care of food, God was protecting his people from certain kinds of foods. True. That obviously good. But that, I think this is way bigger than this. Uh, God wanted his people to be different so that even when they would eat, they would be different. I don't have time to go into it, but I'll just say this application. Are you different than everybody else? Now, if people say you're different, sometimes you may want to rethink what's being meant there. And yet other times the people say, why don't you do that? Why do you do that? Uh, This is a trait of God's people. Oftentimes in the church in the last decades, part of what the local churches try to do is let's be more and more like everybody else so that we'll win them. Uh, God has called us to be different so that we would win them in this. Okay, a whole nother sermon point another time, but you got the tidbit, okay? God has now, back to Acts chapter 10, here's the point. God has now changed the plan. Uh, put it this way. God has now changed his plan. Change is hard, isn't it? Um, imagine you've been raised your entire life with a particular tradition, particular practice, a particular worldview. And every generation that you ever know of, your grandparents, your parents, your great-grandparents, every generation before you has had that paradigm. And then all of a sudden, bam, it is all shot down. Paradigm shifts can be very intense. And paradigm shifts can be hard to handle. Acts chapter 9, Saul, paradigm shift. Peter had never eaten these animals in his life. And that I, when Peter says that, I don't think this is like a, I'm way religious, God, just so that you know that I've never eaten these animals. I actually think this is like a way to go, Peter. That was complete obedience to the Lord. By the way, I don't think for Peter it was the kind of thing where in his life he was like, I so want to eat at the barbecue line but I can't because God's ruining my life. I really think this was the case for Peter. It was like, it was repulsive to eat that because not only because of all the tradition, but because of what he'd grown up with, but because he knew that this was what the Lord wanted. It was an act of obedience unto the Lord. And God, I've never eaten that stuff. No way. He was obeying scripture, but God changed the paradigm on him. How hard would that be? Now God is saying, Peter, here's the deal. Step up to the barbecue line and eat. Paradigm shifts are hard. Paradigm shifts are way uncomfortable. Paradigm shifts even cause you to go, I wonder what my parents would think. I wonder what my grandparents would think. But we've always done this. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, do you get the idea this rocked his boat? While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were, I'm inserting, sovereignly sent by Cornelius 
having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, so he's perplexed on it and he's pondering it. Boy, this sounds a bit like Saul for three days. And the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you are coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. Interesting, God-fearing but not redeemed. A God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. So the next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. That's important. Some of the other brothers in Christ accompany him. They're heading north, uh, and it takes a couple days to do the walk. On the following days, uh, kind of two full days of walking, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Listen, this guy, bless his heart, he doesn't even know how things are supposed to work. He just knows this. There is a God, and I want to know this God. And he falls down, Peter, uh, but Peter lifted him up, saying, No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of other nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common. Or unclean. I just pause there. This is huge. Uh, you know, who enters into a house and gives that kind of explanation? All right? I mean, I would walk into a house and go, hey, nice to meet you. So tell me about you guys. I don't know you. What's going on? And the first thing you walk in and you go, I just want for you to know I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to typically be in a home like this because we just, we don't do that. Uh, I'll put some context to that. Uh, a devout Jew would not eat food that was put together by the hands of a Gentile person. By the way, uh, Gentiles. Okay? Uh, uh, a Jew, when they would be coming from Gentile land and they would step across the border, you know, wherever the border was, they would step across the border, they would literally kick their, the dirt off of the Gentile land. Or I didn't do that right. It's more like kick it, step, kick, step. Because you don't want that kind of sand over on holy sand. You got the idea? And then Peter is in this home. And then Peter's world is rocked by this vision that's taken place. And so Peter here, first thing he says, at least the text tells us, he says to them, is you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of other nation like you guys. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. By the way, you see the word common and unclean in verse 28? You go back to verse 14, and that's where Peter says, No, Lord, I haven't eaten any food that's common or unclean. All of this is being brought together. Why is this being stated here? Because this is front and center on Peter's mind. Peter is coming into this house. His whole world has just been rocked. And he's stepping into a home of a Gentile and their whole family. You would never enter the home of a Gentile as a Jew. But Peter is. And I have to say, way to go, Peter. Way to be a man of God. 
Verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then what you sent for me. Peter's paradigm shift. Verse 17, he's inwardly perplexed. Verse 19, he's pondering it. And now Peter himself is declaring the paradigm in verse 28. Oh, and by the way, in verse 29, he's declaring it, acting upon it without objection. God sets Peter's paradigm, even if God changes his own paradigm. Do we do that? Do you do that? This is simply one word, obedience. This is all about Peter being obedient. And so I ask you and I, who establishes your paradigm? The Lord, Scripture, or you? If you say God, are you sure? I want to note here, we've been reintroduced to Peter a man whose God is using in mighty ways, healing people, raising people from the dead. Peter is not just a slouch for God. Peter is a leader for the Lord. Peter is the leader for the Lord at this point in time. And we would say, man, if someone really has the God paradigm going, Peter's got it. But here's the reality. No matter what position Peter was in, Peter still had more to learn. Steeter... Steeter, Peter still had more paradigm shifts for God to work in his life so that he could have increased impact for the Lord. Who sets your paradigm? Is it God or is it your preferences, your traditions? More on that in a bit. Verse 30. And Cornelius said, uh, well, here's the story. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before the Lord. Ascend therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. (laughs) This is awesome. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You get the picture? Here he comes. He, he, Peter's like, okay, I'm supposed to go there. So I go there. He comes in, what, what, what's up? He opens the door. I've got all my family here, all my nieces and my nephews, my brothers and my sisters, and they're all sitting there. And we're all here to hear what you have to say. Who has an evangelism opportunity like that? Hey, could you come over to our house and tell us about the Lord? I'm going to tell you, and this is the first Gentile that we see, if you were really kind of fully, if you will, in this coming unto the Lord. I mean, we could argue with the Ethiopian eunuch and those kinds of things, but I'm just saying, in this kind of format here, it's just kind of an amazing thing. So cool, isn't it? Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth. (laughs) Way to go, he proclaimed the name. So Peter opened the mouth and said, here's the story. If you want to know what the gospel is about, here it is. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. How interesting is that? The first thing that he sends out of his mouth on this. He's still thinking this paradigm shift. 
God has so rocked my boat, I want to state it again. There's no partiality between him. I think this is Peter just continuing to be like, God, you have just changed my world. Truly, I now, if you will, understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent uh, to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, uh, parentheses, um, by the way, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all were uh, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God the Father raised him from from. Uh, the third day on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who have been chosen by him as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by god the father to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. <laughs> he didn't even get to wrapping it up. And God's already worked. By the way, I just a side note here, literally a side note, because this is something I'm still working through in my thinking. When we talk with people about coming to Christ, and I use the term stake it in the ground and you know, here and with that and so forth, I will just say this, by the way, the spirit of God is coming upon these people even before we hear what they say. Salvation takes place in the heart, by the way, heart in our culture. It's how we think. It's an understanding. And I actually think what's taking place here is in the process as Peter is declaring the truth of who God is, who Christ is. The Peter people are there right there going, I'm with it. I'm in. I'm on that. And at that point, the faith is engaged. They've come to Christ. And the spirit of God is coming upon them. This is essentially, this is the pattern of what happens. People come to Christ and the spirit falls on them as they hear the word and believe it and receive it. Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. It's kind of, I think, a little bit of a cultural jab reality of transition, even on them. I mean, they used to call these people dogs. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Spontaneous baptism. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Oh, by the way, a couple more verses. Chapter 11, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. We'll we'll pause there. God changes and prepares his people for increased gospel impact. Paradigm shifts so often precede ministry expansion opportunities. 
10 years. And Peter is getting out the gospel. 10 years, Peter is doing a great work for the Lord. But after 10 years, God has a bigger territory for him in mind. And God's got to grab a hold of him. And I'll just say this. So lovingly help him understand. I love the fact that the Lord does not come down and stand Peter up and go, Peter, you are such a numbhead. When are you going to get it? Instead, God presents the situation in a format that Peter can completely understand with. I just see so much graciousness. God lovingly introducing a paradigm shift to Peter. And I'm so impressed that Peter embraces it. Peter, while he's thinking about it, he must have gone back and thought through Matthew 28, or Matthew 19, uh, whatever it is. What is it? 28, 19, and 20. Um, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Oh, yeah. All nations. And so far, Peter's just stayed within the nation. Uh, Peter had to be thinking back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem on that, in Judea, Samaria, in that, in the ends of the earth. Oh, yeah. God's revealed paradigms are to be our paradigms. Paradigm shifts are not easy. They're often uncomfortable. They push push our allegiance to me or to the Lord. Do I want God's thing or I don't want my thing? Let me just ask, what paradigms, what viewpoints, what practices do you hold? What paradigms are holding you back from increased ministry opportunities? You and I were created to do God's thing and bring God glory. We were not created to do God's thing our way. We were created to do God's thing God's way. And Peter was doing God's thing. But within his own personal comfort zone, he was doing it. And the result was as he wasn't able to have the expanse of ministry impact that God wanted for him to be able to have in his lifetime. Let me tell you about some paradigm shifts. I've gone through. By nature, as a kid, I was very timid. Very timid. I'm the type of person by nature, I just don't need the spotlight. I am so comfortable and so happy being in the shadow. I just am by nature. Along with that, growing up, I had the idea that to be a pastor, you had to be highly academic, and I'll call it type A. I'm neither of those. Timidity can end up being an excuse for doing what God wants me to do. And God put me through four high schools in four different states growing up. And basically, I came to a point to where I have a choice. 
I can be timid for my life and be off in a corner and have minimal impact for the Lord, or I can step out of that and go after it and see what God could do. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just letting you know. I also began to then realize that, you know what? I don't see in the scriptures where it gives a paradigm for a certain IQ or personality trait, I'll call it, for a pastor. Also, I remember the first time at a church and some churches seeing women serving as ushers for the very first time in my whole life. I remember all of a sudden seeing women serving communion. I remember seeing women give announcements. And I thought, I have never seen that in my life. And then I thought, I don't see a knot in the Bible on that. I saw corporate worship as a necessary filler before the teaching. I was so uncomfortable with clapping hands, especially when people raised their hands, man, it freaked me out because it was a show in my mind. Then I read the Psalms. And then I went to a Colts game. And I thought, how is it that I could get so passionate about the Colts and not about my Savior? I thought churches without an adult Sunday school class were lightweight churches. How could you do that? But then I realized there's not a thou must have an ABF in your church. Spontaneous baptisms, we did a couple Sundays ago. First time I saw that freaked me out because those people haven't been through a class. And everybody knows that the Bible says that there's a class that you have to take before you can get baptized. True? A lot of you know what I'm talking about. And then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> go figure. Acts chapter 9, or Acts chapter 8, Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 10, spontaneous baptism. How about you? It was actually really good for me to sit back and think how the Lord's done some work in my life. I want to encourage you. You've got a little box there on your notes. Maybe you're thinking right now, how has God done some paradigm shifts in your life? Write them down. Just go ahead, write them down as I'm talking here and wrapping up. Because I think for me, it was a time where I sit back and I go, wow, God, I am so grateful that you have stretched me, pushed me, and moved me. It's allowed me to be able to have increased ministry impact. Now, I also want to be able to think, what's a paradigm shift that you need to make? And I just want to say, I want to lovingly step on everybody's toes right now. Lovingly. I've got a list of random ones. Let me just read through. Maybe within here, there's you in here. Just various ideas. Maybe you have a paradigm that the poor are poor because they're lazy. It's their own fault. Maybe it's uh, that my friends who are without Christ, they have no interest in Christ. Wait a second. The scriptures say God has put within every man a yearning for him. Maybe you have in your paradigm, right? God can't use me. I'm too shy. 
maybe for you, it's God can't use me. I'm too damaged. You don't know my history. Maybe for you, I don't know, write, write them down. Maybe for you, it's the idea church really isn't necessary. It's an outdated institution. Or maybe in your paradigm is the church is filled with hypocrites. Can I lovingly say, well, duh, we're all sinners, redeemed. Of course it is. Here's some. Good Christians only use a certain Bible translation. Good Christians have a certain kind or style or volume of worship music. Godly children don't go to public school. Godly children go to public school. Good churches have Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, because we all know that's what Jesus had in his church schedule. Good churches have summer vacation Bible school. Good churches have living Christmas trees. Good churches have communion every week. Good churches have altar calls every week. Good churches have chairs and no pews. I kid you not, I was in a meeting decades ago, literally decades ago now, in a meeting in a building uh, when I was as a lay person. And a guy said, if this church gets pews in its new building, I'm leaving. Doesn't get much more legalistic than that, does it? On the other end, if you will, of the paradigm. Because they didn't want to be viewed as outdated. Good churches have soccer fields and baseball fields and a gym. Good churches have minimal programs. Good churches have programs for like everything. Church in a theater is bad. Church in a theater is awesome. A church must have a building. A church must not have a building because we know everybody met in their homes. Really? That's not what Acts says. I don't want to pray out loud. I can't pray out loud. I can't pray around others. What does the scripture say? Am I stepping on toes yet? My church says that it needs my help serving, but I'm just too busy right now. Or it's not my thing. Why don't we just send money to Romania, St. Vincent, and Haiti? Why are we sending the money to send people? Church people have hurt me. And I'm not going to let that happen again. Good Christians wear a suit and a tie. Definitely not black jeans. Good Christians wear black jeans. I grew up with a common pass the plate for communion. Why do we have to stand and walk over and get it? That person looks questionable. They have tattoos. That person smokes. They have a dark past. They aren't like me. They don't have my interests. Small groups should be arranged by age or stage of life. No, small groups should be arranged with the spread of generations. Small groups should be arranged by location or they should stay together for life or small groups should change every year. Small groups should only study the Bible. Small groups should do only topical studies. I could never lead a small group. Me ask someone for forgiveness? I mean, God's already forgiven me. Invite someone to my house, to my apartment, for lunch, just to get to know them. I can't share the gospel with my friends or with work. I'm just not that eloquent. I'm not that smart. I'm not that uh, Bible savvy. I can't share with others my life struggles. 
Lord God, as uh, we close our time, the reality is I've been fearful of stepping on everyone's toes today. But God, you lovingly, graciously, patiently step on our toes. And you have in my life, and I know you have in so many others here's lives. And God, I am so thankful that a man of God like Peter, being used to heal people, being used to raise people from the dead, being used greatly by you in such huge ministry capacity, he had to be confronted with a paradigm shift in his own mind and in his own life in order for him to be more effective for you. Oh God, far too often we let our preferences, our personal little comfort zone things be the zone that we stay in. And the reality is, is when we think about it, when we look at it, I'm not serving you. I'm serving my comfort zone. And you are all about getting us out of ourselves. And oh Lord, I just pray today that there may be individuals who right now maybe even are mad at me maybe are feeling a sense of guilt over areas in their lives that they just want to cling on. And it's not even necessarily that it's wrong. It's just the fact that we cling to our things. Far too often it limits us from being about your thing. So I just pray, God, would you just help us to get humbled and to be about you and not about us. May our thing be your thing. Thank you for being so gracious to us. You're amazing. In Christ's name we pray.